so cool to see God uh, using our church as our church goes out into the community to be the church. And that's just a snapshot of different ways that we can exercise good faith at work. Um, I know that everyone's work situation looks a little different. But let's pick up again in the story of Daniel, and we're going to move along to a new aspect or dimension of good faith. If you're looking for the book of Daniel, it's in the Old Testament. The easiest way to find it, if you have a Bible, is to go to the front part of the Bible, the index, and you can see the page number. But if you're looking on learning how to navigate the Bible, uh, open your Bible to the midway point. You'll find the book of Psalms. Then you're heading over to the right past Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and there's these four uh, or three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you pick up with Daniel. We'll be picking up with Daniel chapter 3, Daniel 3. Do you remember when you were a child that your mom or a coach or a doctor would tell you that you needed to work on your posture? Uh, when I was a gangly teenager, I used to walk around with my shoulders kind of slumped a little bit. I would do this kind of thing. And more and more people would come up to me and say, you need to straighten your posture. You need to stand up with a straight back or you're going to have back issues when you get older. Posture is that unconscious stance or position that we take as we navigate life. So physically, it involves the way I stand, but it can also be attitudinal. Uh, there can be people with the posture of being a glass half full or people with the posture of a glass half empty. And I'll tell you, I prefer to hang out with the half full types. It's just honest. So it's that reoccurring pattern or way that we approach life, and often we're not thinking about it. Gesture is a little different. Gesture, uh, we take a lot of different gestures throughout the day. We might stoop down to pick up a newspaper. We might sit in an oversized chair to read a book. Uh, we might give our wife or uh, whatever a kiss as we're heading out for the day. Here's the thing that happens with gestures, though. The more that I use a gesture, the more that that gesture may become a posture. It might become a habit. Now, we've seen this in different ways. Have you ever went to lunch or been in a social situation with someone from a military or policing background? Uh, that person, if you've ever noticed, sits in a room, and because they've had to think about life in that way, they're, they're scanning the room. They're, they're at this ready position all the time, just in ca case things go down. So their, their posture has become one of alertness and readiness. Or another example of this, the teenager who plays too many video games. It seems like their shoulders are perpetually hunched towards a television, and there's that vacant stare that they have as they're playing the games, right? So again, gesture that turns into a posture. Now, a couple of weeks ago in Daniel, we were talking about a way to approach culture. Do you remember that? We, we talked about creating culture and cultivating culture. We also said that sometimes Christians tend towards other approaches that are not so helpful, one of those being condemning culture. But what, what about Christians using condemning as a gesture for occasions, for moments? Sometimes it's necessary, isn't it? 
Uh, For example, if Christians see an overt act of racism, should we say something? Of course we should. We should insist that this doesn't happen. Or, or in a society, we, we understand that there's really dark things that happen, like human trafficking. And of course, a Christian would want to condemn that practice in the society. Here's the thing with gestures. Really powerful when used in a tasteful way. But when gestures become postures, well, then they become unseemly. Because here's the thought. If everything's a crisis, then nothing's a crisis. And so instead of being that that voice of God that's countercultural for the moment, we turn into a broken record and everyone turns their ears off to us. Well, today in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to look at three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, And you might be asking the question as you look at this story, where's Daniel at? Why is he not a part of this story? And it Just to put that question out of your mind so you can listen to the rest of the sermon, I think Daniel is leading Babylon at this time, and this is taking place in another location, the plain of Dura. So Daniel would stay there, but everyone else goes to the plain of Dura. And these three Jewish exiles are going to have their good faith put to the test. How are they going to respond? Well, they show us a powerful gesture that we can use too when society asks us to do something that we don't agree with. So let's pick up the story and we'll look at verse 1 to begin. Daniel 3.1 says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the providence of Babylon. So you might recall last week when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of the secession of four empires and it endpointed on the coming of the kingdom of Christ. Now, this dream had left him shaken, but he also realized as a result of this dream that there was something unique about the God of Daniel. In fact, in Daniel 2.46, truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. So what does he decide to do with this dream? Well, he does what any other megalomaniac would do with this dream. He builds a 90-foot tall statue to commemorate how awesome he is. And the big idea here is that the golden head part of the dream got to Nebuchadnezzar's head. So here's this incredible statue. And the message that he's sending to all the nations is that Babylon is more powerful, wealthier, and more advanced than all of you. Bow to our dominion. To reinforce the message, he calls all of the who's who of Babylon together. And we pick up at verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the providence to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the providence gathered for the dedication of the image. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, That when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. That's redundant, isn't it? Burning, fiery furnace. They didn't have exclamation points back then, so they said things twice to emphasize this going to be hot if you get thrown in here. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations' languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So think about the pressure that is mounting around these three friends right now in this moment. Everyone who matters is here. Everyone who has power, influence in Babylonian society is simultaneously going to agree with this stance that Nebuchadnezzar has just struck. Because why? They live in a society where they believe in many gods. So what's wrong with assimilating one more god into the pantheon of gods that you already believe with? And besides, who's going to risk their neck to not bow down right now in this moment? Nebuchadnezzar's drawn a line in the sand, hasn't he? He says, bow to this idol, and by extension of bowing to the idol, you are bowing to me? Or things are about to get really hot for you. Now, when it comes to practicing good faith, you have to understand that sometimes, Christian, you are going to stick out like a sore thumb. You are. There are certain values that society looks at, and they say, it's no big deal to bend in this value. What, what harm does it do to me if I do this? But when we look at our core beliefs, it's a non-negotiable. Think about what Scripture said to these three Jewish exiles in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, the Lord said, You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a, card, a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, friends, that is the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. Do you think they're important? Really important. And so these friends know that they cannot bow down to this idol. Now, when we think about idols, I, I often think of an American Westerner hearing about idols, and we say to ourselves, well, I don't really ever struggle with that. I mean, if someone put up a 90-foot tall statue, show of hands, how many of you would feel tempted to bow to it right now? Okay, no one. But I would say this, idols are more than just an image that we bow to. In fact, I think we can say that idols are anything that we prioritize over God in our life. So what is our big idol? What's our 90-foot-tall statue? Well, the more I've looked at it, the more I've read about it, the more I believe that our idol is self-fulfillment. We regularly, in this society, are told to bow to the idol of self-fulfillment. It's like the air we breathe. It, it happens all the time around us. We're constantly bombarded by it, and we don't even realize it's happening. Let me tell you about six guiding principles that may help you to see this. And you'll notice some percentages on the side. Those are the number of Christians when asked, is this a good value, would say, yes, this is a good value. To find yourself, look within yourself. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. To be fulfilled in life, pursue things you desire most. 
Enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs do not affect society. Any kind of intimacy that God intended for a marriage between a husband and a wife, as long as it's between two consenting adults, it's fine, regardless of marital status. Now, when you look at any one of those percentages, almost half of Christians, for all of them, would agree, some three-quarters for some of them. Uh, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons in their book, Good Faith, write this, me-focused morality is all the rage. To see this, one only has to look at two relationships that, according to traditional Christianity, require epic levels of self-sacrifice and others' focus to do them right. Marriage and parenting. Culturally, marriage has become about little more than how I feel when I'm with my spouse. I'm asking the question, does she complete me? And parenting is similarly me-oriented. One marketing company put these words on their website. Parenting struggles are a perfect opportunity for personal growth. Use parenting as your path towards personal fulfillment and creating your best life. Now, let me ask you the question. Would you want to be that person's kids? It's all about me. I'm, I'm using you as a means to an end. You see, it turns out that society has many idols, and the idols of ancient Babylon are not too different than modern America. Because when you rip the mask away of any idol, what lies behind the mask is the self. Nebuchadnezzar's idol was about worshiping him. Our idol today just sheds the pretense and says, I'm going to worship me. Church, what do we do when society says bow to the idol? Uh, do we just simply accept that as everybody's doing this, rationalize it away, better to kind of go with the flow than to have or experience fallout in our culture or our society? Well, let's take a look at what these three exiles do. So pick up with me at verse 8. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree. Let's go to verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now think about their situation. They're climbing the ladder, and they've made enemies. There are people who are looking at them tangentially from the side and saying, we're not happy with what's going on here. Part of it was anti-Semitic, wasn't it? They said, these Jews. But another part of it was they were just jealous over the advancement. These people that you have put in power. Here's the truth, Christian. While you are practicing good faith in culture, there will be some who will resent you. It's true. Remember the, the three words of good faith, love, believe, live? It doesn't matter how well you practice love, there will be some people who resent what you represent. And you just have to come to terms with that. 
Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had not made it a habit to refuse Nebuchadnezzar. It was not their posture. Uh, in fact, if you were to ask or describe their posture in a single word, their posture was engaged. And they were fulfilling the, the, the command that the Lord had given the people of Israel in Jeremiah 27.9. What did the Lord say to them? Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So what did these men do? Well, they worked hard in society even though they were exiles. They didn't condemn it often, but they prayed for it. They invested in it. And when you think about the words of Jesus, how did Jesus ask us to approach society. I think the same posture, engaged. What did he say? You are the salt of the earth. So active Christian engagement preserves culture, care about culture, pray for culture, fight for the good of culture. He also said you're the light of the world so that your active presence faithfully bears witness to those in society who may not know the God of light. That's to be our posture in society. And isn't that what we saw with, with Eben and, and Dean and Nancy and Kim at work? When, when they were sharing the way that they were approaching work, I didn't hear things like, you know, I really don't like that my job does this. But no, I heard things like, how can I engage with my work? I want to go in and, and talk to people and pray for people and be present in their life. That's what engagement looks like as a posture. And, and I would commend that to you, church, as a posture. We should all be like that. But having said that, sometimes as a gesture, refusal has an incredible impact. You see, if we are going to be proactive with our good faith in society, sometimes we need to practice refusal. Because another part of good faith is believe. And believe believes that truth claims matter. They do. Believe understands that there are certain things that are happening within society that cross a line and become non-negotiable for us. Now look at how these three friends deftly refuse Nebuchadnezzar. Look at the scriptures, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Verse 15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Again, let's think about their posture. Here, in this moment, bowing is non-negotiable. But so many things were negotiable up to this point, weren't they? Let us change your names, and we're even going to put our God's names into the names that we give you. That's fine. Do what you want to do. You can call me a circle if I'm a square. I don't really care. Call me whatever you want. Oh, we're going to change your language. We're going to make you learn about our culture. That's fine. I will study it with all of my intensity and brain power, and I will learn it better than your wisest and brightest in your culture. Uh, you can become friends with people in Babylon, right? You can care about the poor in society. You can pay taxes. You can roll with the policy decisions. 99% of the time, the answer is yes, yes. Yes, we'll do this. We're fine with this. But ask us to deny our faith. Do something immoral. Bow to a false god. The answer is always no. Absolutely not. Christian, let me ask you a serious question this morning. Do you know your faith well enough to know when you should say no without hesitation? Do you? Because sometimes we see Christians saying no when they don't need to say no. And other times we see Christians saying yes when they should absolutely be saying no. Here's the thing. Saying no at the right time for the right reason with no hint of wavering can leave a lasting impression. Do you think that Nebuchadnezzar ever heard someone say no to him? Ever? No, hardly, right? He had CEO disease. No one said anything to him because they knew that if they did, their heads would be rolling. Now, just consider the impact of these three young Jewish exiles looking them in the eyes and saying, no. Here's the thing. When you say no, you don't have to be harsh or a jerk about saying no. In fact, you can be really kind, but you do have to be clear, and you do have to be godly in the way that you do it. And that's how these guys approach it. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If God wishes to save us from your furnace, he is able if he does not wish to do so, here's the deal, Nebuchadnezzar. The only power you have over us is to take our life. You have no power over us in the life beyond. Friends, that is such a good faith statement. That is such a good faith statement. God can save. He can save right now. He has full authority and power to do that. But I understand that God's priorities are not always present and temporal but they're mostly eternal in their weight. And so good faith people trust God with their present situation from an eternal perspective. You see how they do that in the text? Now, now this response sends Nebuchadnezzar into an absolute rage. He goes full-on rageaholic on these guys. He tells them to heat up the furnace seven times. Idiomatically, it means crank that thing up as hot as it will go. 
Now, these furnaces were incredible. It must have been an incredibly large furnace in order to do the scope and scale of work that they were doing on this statue. They were using it to smelt the gold, to bake the bricks, and, and they could crank these things up so hot that it would get to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's really hot. In fact, it's so hot in verse 22 that as the soldiers are marching them up an earthen ramp, the text says that they died on contact with the heat. So they throw these three exiles into the furnace, clothes on, bound, and Nebuchadnezzar is stunned by what he sees next. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to king, to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Now go back to verse 15 for just a second and look at that. Nebuchadnezzar had issued a direct challenge to God. What God would be able to save you if I throw you into the furnace? And this is God's answer to that question. Now many of us, as we look at that fourth person in the fiery furnace, ask, who in the world is this fourth person? Nebuchadnezzar says that he is a son of the gods. He, he looks at this fourth person and he sees the marks of divinity on this fourth person. Some scholars, as they look at this, wonder if it's an angel that God sent to be with them in the furnace. But I tell you, as I study the Old Testament from a Christian lens, I see that there are times when the pre-incarnate Christ comes He's referred to in the scriptures as the angel of the Lord. And I believe here in this fiery furnace that Christ is meeting with these three exiles through their fiery trial. Now just think about God's presence as you think about that. Here they are in their weakest moment, and, and God doesn't tell them by faith to go through that alone. God comes to them and meets with them. Christian, the same is true for you. I know so many of you go through difficult times, circumstances where your life feels like it is absolutely falling apart. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You keep praying over the same matter over and over and over again, and you're expecting a miracle. You want a miracle. And sometimes it just doesn't happen, does it? But here's the thing that we can take strength in as we're going through that fiery trial. That Jesus Christ goes through the trial with me. 
There's never a single time, a single experience that you go through in your Christian walk where Jesus doesn't go through it with you. God never asks you to do that alone. And in the scriptures also say that any trial that God brings into your life, you are able and equipped and strong enough to handle because the presence of Jesus is with you. But here's something even more incredible than that reality. What does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that Jesus went through the ultimate fiery trial for us. He went to the cross. He laid down his life. And, and here's the thing. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's good faith statement, if he's able, he will, or he is able, and if he wants to, he will, but if not, I'm still going to trust him. Jesus says the same thing at the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Church, why would Jesus go to the cross with that perspective? He goes to the cross like that because he knows that there is a better outcome than present salvation. Present salvation is not always the answer. In fact, he knew what the answer was, eternal salvation. Shedding his blood, laying down his life for our sins so that we might come into a right relationship with God. So the book of Hebrews then takes all of that experience, and it tells us that we are running a race that we must run with endurance, right? What does it mean to run a race with endurance? It means the race is hard, that there's suffering, hardship, that there's times and points of exhaustion where I don't feel like I can keep running anymore. Well, how do I run that race well? Well, Hebrews 12, 2 tells me how I run that race well. It says this, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor before God's throne. That's the place of exaltation. And the scriptural message is this. If, if Jesus was exalted and I follow Jesus and I look to Jesus, then in eternity I will be exalted too. So how do I keep running the race? How do I keep moving along without giving up? I look to Jesus. I never take my eyes off of Jesus. He's my north star. He's my guide. He's the endpoint destination. And here's the thing. When I take my eyes off of him, that's when I start failing in the run. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are met with a divine promise, Isaiah 43, 2, for their present situation. Scripture says, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Isn't that incredible? They go through this fiery furnace. They don't smell like smoke. I don't know about you, but when I have a backyard barbecue, I sit by that fire for two minutes, and I've got to throw those clothes in the wash because they smell horrible. Uh, not a, a single stitch on their clothes, not a hair on their head is touched. Let me ask you a question as you think about that. Who is that message for? Who's that message for? Well, I don't think it, it was actually for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they already trusted God. 
No, I think the message was for the king who wanted everyone to bow to a statue of him. And God was sending him a big memo. You think you're in charge, but you're wrong. I am. Listen to the king's response, verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. Let me just pause there for a second. Culture will respect you when you're courageous. Even on the front end, it's threatening you for being courageous. I hope you understand that. They will respect you when you're courageous. So they set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house shall lay ruins. Nebuchadnezzar always goes big. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the providence of Babylon. So as we're closing down the message, just know this. I don't think that that means that Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it. In fact, next week, the title of the sermon is going to be, Who's the Boss? Because Nebuchadnezzar and God go for a head-to-head, and we'll see what happens. You'll have to tune in to see what happens there. But let's not miss the big idea. The big idea is this. Believing that God is in control is the difference maker. It's the difference maker. Too many of us live with a terrible posture in life. It's the posture of fear. We're afraid. We're afraid to do things for God. We're afraid at times that God might not show up when we trust him. We're afraid of what other people will think of us. We're we're afraid that we might fail. But what would happen if we changed our posture? When I think of someone who lived a different posture, I think of missionary John Patton. He was called by God to go to the missionary or, or to the island in the South Sea, Anawa, which was a part of this island change, the New Hebrides Islands. And in going to these islands, he knew that it would be fraught with danger. Uh, the natives who occupied these islands were cannibals. And they practiced infanticide and widow sacrifice. In fact, when he was heading out on this missionary journey, Many of his friends told him, don't go. In fact, one of them said, point blank, cannibals are going to eat you if you go there. You know what his response to that was? Listen here, friend. You're advanced in years. Worms are about to eat you. What's the difference between being eaten by worms or cannibals? We're both going to stand before the same Jesus. Now, that's incredible. (laughs) I don't think I would have the courage to say that in the moment. He chose faith over fear. As you look at four year, a four-year period of his life, it is literally like reading a thriller novel. Moment after moment, time after time, his life's threatened. There's a time where he's being chased and he has to climb up in a tree and sit in a tree for a day so that he's not found and killed. Another intense moment for him was the time when he and a native friend named Abraham were surrounded in another island named Tana. 
and they were trying to escape the island, and they're encircled by a group of native warriors who are angry, and they're just egging one another on who's going to be the first one to take the first shot to kill him. But by God's grace, he escapes that situation, and he later writes down of a thought that sustained him in the midst of it. Listen to this. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all this scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The, insur- the assurance came to me as if a voice of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not arrow leave the bow or killing stone the finger without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is in all power in heaven and on earth. He rules nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. Church, theology matters when it matters most. Believe informs live. When you believe that God is in control, totally in control of everything, all situations, all seasons, all circumstances, it will change your posture of fear to one of faith. Now, what would be different about your life if you lived life through a posture of faith? I'll tell you, for one thing, you'd sleep better at night. You'd stop lying awake thinking about that thing that you're repeatedly thinking about. You you would have the courage to never compromise. In all those situations in life where our integrity is asked to be compromised, you would be confident when God tells you or lays something on your heart to follow through with whatever that action is, whatever that sinful pattern that you've established in your life, you would trust him for the victory to walk through that in his way. You see, Patton dared to believe these things for the sake of the gospel, and there was an incredible result. The entire island of Anawa turned to Jesus. I believe that God has great purposes for you and for me. It might not be on the island of Anawa. It might be right here on Cape Cod. The question always is, will you dare? Will you dare to believe that he's in control? Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we close our time in Daniel, I want to thank you for the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. Uh, Their life really does inform our life. As we watch them walk with Jesus and, and walk by faith and believe that you're sovereign, Lord, so can we. And we wish to be the type of people who love, who believe, who live, who exercise good faith, for your good purposes in this world. Help us to do that, Lord. I want to pray over the one here right now who may be struggling with the posture of fear. I ask, Lord, that you would meet them in their place of weakness right now, that you would embolden their heart for your glorious purposes, that they would know, Lord, that they are immortal until your work 
with them is done. Amen.